is just the three main groups that we saw um, described last week and the three different reactions to the birth um, of our Savior and the Messiah of the world. And we see in that first group that's represented by Herod is those that reacted with absolute hatred and jealousy. You know, Herod just reacted in such a way that he wanted to see no threat to his throne. He wanted absolutely nobody to be able to come against him and his throne. He wanted no competition. And people today, we see that in people's lives. People don't want anybody but themselves to be king over their own lives, right? They don't want to submit to the power and the cross, and they don't want God's example in their life. They don't want to submit to that. They want to be their own kings. The second example and the group that we see is that of the priests and the scribes and the other religious leaders. They showed complete indifference to the Messiah. It was really crazy. It was interesting because here these guys were with the word of God that they studied. They were the ones that Herod went to and you know, asked the questions about the Messiah. When would he come? Where would he come? And they had the answers because they studied the scriptures. If anybody should have been jumping up and down for joy and, and getting on board with the Magi and running to Bethlehem, it should have been these guys. But they didn't. They didn't care. They were so wrapped up in their own religiosity and what they were doing that they didn't care that the true Messiah of the world had come, right? And so they just acted with indifference. And then we saw the third group, the group that represented those that were watching and waiting, the group that was the Magi, the wise men. And they truly were wise men because they had been studying the scripture. You know, there's a good chance that they learned a lot of what they knew from Daniel, the prophet, in, when he was in captivity in Babylon. I'm sure that he maybe passed on some of this information and they got part of it and they had been studying the scriptures and they'd been studying the stars. They were astrologers and they recognized that this star that they saw was not a normal thing. It was something truly that only God could do. There was a star in the sky that was not there before and never would be again. It was a star that led them to the Messiah and they were wise and they studied and they were expectantly waiting and they came with the right heart to worship the Lord and Savior when he came, right? And so that's the group that we want to be in. That group that is expectantly waiting for the Savior to come. You know, I think about when they brought Jesus to the temple to have him circumcised. There was the priest there, Simeon, and he had been told by the Holy Spirit that he wasn't going to die until he had seen the Messiah. And when Jesus came in, when they brought him in to be circumcised, he recognized that his eyes were seeing the Messiah of the world. And he praised the Lord and said, I can die now in peace. God, you fulfilled your promise to me. I've seen the Messiah. And Anna was there and she recognized it. And she saw this. And, you know, these were people that were expectantly waiting for the prophetic events to happen. You know, that 400 year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament was there was no new prophecy. There was no nothing new coming out 
But there were those that were studying what was there and expectant and waiting for what was to happen. So, you know, we see that today. You know, that there's so many people that miss that. They're not looking, right? I mean, we can look around today. We can see the signs of the times that we're in. That's what we're supposed to do. These were, that's what they were doing. They recognized the signs. And that's what God, in his word, has given us the information we need to look around and see the signs of the times that we're in. You know, Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, if only you had known the time of your visitation. Because so many missed it. They missed his coming. They weren't expectantly waiting for the return or for the coming of the Messiah. And we need to be that. We need to be waiting for his return, expectantly watching and waiting, waiting for that glorious appearing. So we're picking up today, the beginning in verse 13, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all of its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. God, we just praise you this morning. We thank you for your word that shows us every aspect of your plan. Father, we just thank you for what you will show us this morning. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place and you would reveal yourself through your word in Jesus' name. May be seated. So that first verse says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now I want to just stop right there for a second, because some people could look at this passage and think, Wow. Satan really, he got one up on God. God was playing defense here. He, he really had to maneuver around, you know, this plan of Satan, right? But that's just so not the case. God was allowing all of this to accomplish the plan that he had set out before the world was ever created. You know, we serve a God who lives outside of time. Our God had already seen all of these events play out millennia before they actually happened. Because he's a God that knows the beginning from the end. And he tells us that. He tells us that in scripture. 
In Isaiah 42, 9, it says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God tells us before they happen. In Isaiah 48, 5, he says, Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, My idol has done them. And my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine attributing something to a piece of wood that God did? You know, and so God circumvented that thinking by saying, no, I'm going to tell you ahead of time what's going to happen. So when it happens, you'll know that it was me that did it. Right? And Jesus, he says that of himself in John. He says, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Believe me, you know, God was not surprised then, and he's not surprised now. There's not one thing that happened back then or one thing that happens now that God doesn't know about. In his infinite foreknowledge, he's already got the plan laid out. And that should be a really great comfort to us as believers. That should be something that we can just bank on and know that no matter what we see in this world today, no matter how it looks, like it's just going so down the tubes. And it is, absolutely. But it's not out of God's control. God is in control. And everything that looks like it's spinning out of control is just everything landing in its perfect place. God has designed all of these things and allowed these things to happen to bring together his plan for all eternity. So we really need to remember that and understand that and to take comfort in that, that we don't need to worry. We don't need to stress about what's going on around us. We just need to concentrate and focus on the fact that God loves us. It's all in his command. It's all in his control. And we just need to serve him for what he's called us to do today. And today only. Don't worry about tomorrow. The Bible tells us, don't worry about tomorrow. It's, today's got enough problems. You know, I'll take care of tomorrow, tomorrow. So we just need to stick with the Lord and move forward. So we move on and it says, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is another really neat thing that we see over and over and over again through Matthew, is that word, that it might be fulfilled, or that which was spoken of by the prophets. Because Jesus' birth and his incarnation, it... It was like over 300 Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled in his life. Just that. Like, and, you know, it's just, yeah, I thought it was really amazing when Pastor Brent was talking about, you know, if he had read that stat, one, the chances of one guy fulfilling even eight of those prophecies was like, I don't know, I forget the number. It was crazy. It was like trillions and trillions of zeros behind it. Anyway, this is crazy. But God fulfilled all of them. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And we see that again when this verse that he's talking about is coming out of Hosea 11. 
It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And we see here in that context that Hosea is talking about the Israelites, the Jews being taken out of Egypt by Moses. He's being led out, well, by God, but being led by Moses out of Egypt. And they were a young nation. You know, they were a nation that had not been around too long. You know, they started out into going into Egypt. There was about 70 people in the family. And, uh, you know, now they were approximately a million, they figure, when they were, when they were coming out. But they were a young nation, a young child, and they were being called out of Egypt. But you know what I love about the word is that this also relates to Jesus being called out of Egypt. And we don't have to guess about that because the Bible just said it might be fulfilled. This happened with Jesus. So we don't have to guess about it. And I love how the Bible does that so often. It will use a near and a far kind of example of what a a certain prophecy or verse is about. And we see that here in that. So something else that really stands out to me out of this picture is the obedience of Joseph. We see this as a kind of a pattern in Joseph's life. He hears from God and he acts on what God is telling him and he, and he does it. You know, he, in the last chapter, we saw him being very confused and, and very wondering what to do about Mary when she told him he was pregnant, or she was pregnant. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, we see that, and, but the, the angel of the Lord said, hey, it's okay. She, it's, it's good. She is pregnant with the, by the Holy Spirit, and take her as, as your wife. And so he did. He was obedient. He moved in obedience, and he did that. And we see it again here. The angel tells him to take Joseph, or Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt, and they do that. And we see it a couple more times before the end of the chapter. And in most of Scripture, in all of Scripture, we're not really told a lot about Joseph's life. We're not told about a lot of the things that happened as he, you know, fostered the, the, the Son of God. He was an amazing earthly father to Jesus. And we don't know a whole lot about it. But what we are told and what we see in Scripture is the passages that talk about him being so obedient to what God tells him to do. And, you know, in chapter 1, we see that he was um, talked about as a just man, and Pastor Brent talked about that being better translated as righteous, and he was a man that followed the law of God as it was given to Moses. We also see that he was a kind and loving man. He wanted to spare Mary from any public embarrassment when she told him she was pregnant. Even though Joseph must have been feeling confused and betrayed and hurt because he naturally would have thought that it was infidelity on the part of Mary. And he was concerned, though, how this would affect her. He wanted to protect her. The Bible says that he wanted to put her away quietly. He didn't want to cause a big disruption for Mary you know, he wanted to protect her. This was the natural makeup of Joseph. He was a just man that wanted to do the correct thing. And he wanted to protect his bride-to-be. You know, this is a true picture of what a godly husband should look like. 
A godly husband is one that would sacrifice his own needs, his own desires, and his wants for that of his wife. You know, Jesus gives us that perfect example in the fact that he is the groom for his bride, the church, and that he laid down his life for his bride. And that's how we, men, godly husbands, need to be. We need to have that sacrificial love for our wives that would lay down our own desires and put the desires and the needs of our wife ahead of our own. His actions are of obedience to God, and we see it over and over. God tells him something through a dream or an angel, and Joseph has the immediate response of getting it done. He doesn't sit around and think about it or talk to some of his friends and see what they think about it. He doesn't even think to himself, well, I better pray about this one. No, he understands that he's heard a word from the Lord and he acts on it. This is the kind of obedience that we as believers in Christ need to have. There are just some things that are so obvious there's no need to question or think. Is it a command from God? Does it line up with what we are told in Scripture about how we are to live our lives? Just be obedient and act on God's word to us. I get it. You know, sometimes, you know, you think, well, maybe I'm being called into the mission field or maybe I'm being called to be a pastor. Those things, yeah, they require some extra thought. They require some prayer and some consideration and seeing what God is doing in your life. But for the most part, every aspect of our lives is covered in the word of God. We don't need to question. We don't need to wonder. We just need to look to God's word and see what does it say about it and respond in obedience. Does God want you to tell your neighbor about the gospel? Yes, he does. Does he want you to serve in the body of Christ? Sure he does. Does he want you to be anxious or to worry? No, he doesn't. He's given us everything we need to know about him and what he wants from us in his word. We just need to be obedient. The freedom that we get then from that in our lives when we're acting and living according to his word is amazing. You know, I love how so many of the promises that God gives in the Bible are given in past tense. They've already been established for us. We just need to reach out and grab them take part of them, accept them. As Brent said in talking about, you know, the Israelites being led into the promised land and how that relates to our salvation. God had already given them the promised land. They just needed to go in and possess it. And that's what we need to do with our spiritual lives. God has given us his word. He's given us the promises. He's given us those things. We just need to act on them and get up and possess the land that he has already given to us. So can you imagine the, the kind of overwhelming relief that Joseph would have felt when the angel did come to him and tell him that the baby in Mary's tummy was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Joseph didn't understand that, I'm sure. He didn't get how that worked, but he knew that God had said it, and he believed it, and he moved upon it, and he acted. God had a plan in motion, and he knew that the woman that he loved had not been unfaithful, and not only that, but she had been chosen to carry the very Son of God into this world. Joseph, he would have known that they still would have had a tough road ahead, 
there would have been snickers and laughs and talking behind their back in the village because, you know, that's not something that most people are going to get, right? And it's going to be kind of a, a hard sell. So he knew that there was people that were going to talk. And there was things in his life that were going to be struggles as he was given this task of raising the Son of God. But he knew the underlying truth and the whole picture. And he trusted the Lord. And he knew that there was nothing, nothing that he or Mary could sacrifice that would measure up to the plan that God had put in place. And what God's plan was, there was nothing that would have mattered enough that they wouldn't have done it, right? That's how God works in us, you know? We just need to know what he's talking to us about and we need to act on it and not be afraid. Not be afraid. You know, God never let Joseph in on every part of the plan all at once. He told him in bits and pieces. And that's how God works with us too. He doesn't give us the whole plan. You know, God, how is this all going to work out? He doesn't, you know, say, well, I'll tell you, here's the whole plan. It's like, no, I don't want to know that, right? We would back away if we knew the whole plan because God works in ways that we don't understand. So, you know, God, we're on a need-to-know basis with God. And that's, you know, he gives us what we need, when we need, and that's about it. And that's a good thing, for sure. So moving on. It says, then Herod when he saw he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Herod was wicked. He was an evil guy. There was nothing really very redeeming at all about Herod. He had even had some of his own sons, most of them actually, killed, and his wife, because they were a threat to his throne. He wanted no competition. Historic writings tell us that Herod actually made a list of prominent and popular people that were to be killed on the day of his death because he knew that he was so hated that no one would cry that he died. So in order to make sure there was tears shed on the day of his death, these people were to be killed, because I didn't guarantee that there would be tears that day. You know, so he, he believed the wise men, and he understood that the Magi was telling the truth. He knew that this was the promised son of God, the Messiah, and he didn't care. He was truly going against God, and he was inspired by Satan to do it. And this is just another one of the literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies we see fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And this one is really neat, because we get to witness just how amazing our God is. And we see the way it's woven together in such a way that it just makes a beautiful like tapestry, a picture of all the things that God puts in, all the little details in Jeremiah 31, 15, we see this prophecy spoken about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And it's referring to the grief and anguish that the Hebrew mothers were feeling when their children were taken away and killed in the Babylonian conquest under King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Matthew, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, sees the parallel of this prophecy with another evil king. This time it's Herod, who in a desperate attempt to ward off any competitors to his throne, has all the young boys and babies under two years old killed. And this is, we have another prophecy that relates to two different things at the same time, right? The next thread that we see in this tapestry is the mention of Rachel and Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is first mentioned in Genesis 35, 15 to 20, when, it, when Jacob is returning to his own land. He's, he's been away for a long period of time. Um, he's been working for his uncle, who kind of messed him over. He went to get Rachel, and he ended up with Leah, and then he had to work another seven years to get Rachel. But in the end, he, he and his entourage, his kids, his wives, they were coming back. They were coming back to their land. And they were not quite to Bethlehem, the Bible tells us. And Rachel went into labor. Now, the shorter version of this account is that she died in childbirth, giving birth to their youngest son, Benjamin. But before she died, she named the child Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob later changed the boy's name to Benjamin which means son of my right hand. And it's interesting how both of these names prophetically relate to Jesus in that he is described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But in Acts chapter 5, he is described as our prince and savior seated at the right hand of God. So here we have a reference to Rachel, one of the mothers of the tribes of Israel, dying just outside of Bethlehem where Jesus the Messiah, not only of the Jews, but the Messiah of the whole world was to be born. Only our God could take all these things and knit them together like that and make such an example of why you need to read and understand your Old Testament. Why you don't get what is happening in the New Testament if you don't read and understand your Old Testament. So many things virtually, you know, a lot, most of the New Testament, the first part of it anyway, is talking about everything that was told, foretold in the Old Testament and has been revealed in the life of Christ, right? So you need to be a part of understanding and reading the Old Testament in order to get what's happening in the New Testament. And I'm going to shamelessly plug Wednesday nights <laughs> right now because Pastor Brent's going through Joshua, and it's an amazing book. And he's only just started, so you haven't missed much. So come on out on Wednesday night. And, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting and great time to see just all of the foreshadowing and all the things that are laid out in the Old Testament that we see coming in the New. So anyway, show up on Wednesday. It's a good night. So we pick up in verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. 
he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, I tell you, Joseph, he must have been on a first-name basis with this angel by this time. <laughs> He'd seen him a lot, talked to him. You know, it's like, oh, you're back. Cool. What's, what's next? You know? Now, that would be a wonderful thing if we could have an angel that would just, you know, show up and give us the directions for the next part of our life, right? You know, and say, hey, you know, okay, now you're going to do this. But, you know, Joseph was, he had kind of a big job. He was raising the son of God. So, you know, they wanted to make sure he was not, you know, making any mistakes along the way or taking any liberties. But God has given us his word, and that's our direction. That's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to count on when we are looking at things in our life. So, you know, we can depend on God's word. Joseph is given that green light to go back to Israel now because Herod had died. And he packed up and he took young Jesus and Mary and headed back. The angel visits Joseph again on the way and redirects him into Galilee, specifically to Nazareth. And this again to fulfill prophecy. You know, it's interesting we mentioned Herod had killed most of his sons, but... He had left Archelaus and his brother alive and divided the kingdom between them. He was so narcissistic that he divided the kingdom so that neither son would be as great as he was. He didn't want them to hold that same kind of prestige. And Archelaus, he was wicked. The historic writer Josephus said he had all the cruelty of his father, but none of the greatness. So Archelaus was ruling in the Judea and Jerusalem area, and his brother Herod Antipas, who it was said was much more even-tempered, was ruling in the Galilee. And so God directs Joseph there. Now, it wasn't just for that. It was because God directed them there to fulfill the prophecy, right? So they ended up back in Nazareth, where it all started. God brought them full circle. It was such a neat thing. That's where they were when they were first betrothed to one another. That's where they were when the, the angel first appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. So God brought them back full circle. It was so neat. And as I prepare to close here today, I want to bring your attention to something else that struck me as I was studying for this message. We know that God has shown us in his word that he very often has things like patterns in the Bible. We see God do the same types of things over again. And we see that there, he works in certain ways. And, and I think that it's often time of foreshadowing of events that are to come. And one of the things that I see relates to something that I want to remind the church about today. It's a fact that whenever there was a slaughter of innocent children, God moved in mighty ways. When Moses was born, Pharaoh had given an order that all of the Hebrew babies were to be surrendered and killed because he feared the numbers of Hebrew people were getting too large and there was a chance of rebellion and an uprising by that slave force that they had created. Well, what came out of that? God miraculously saved Moses. He saved him by... And, and I love it. God is so cool the way he does things. Not only did he save Moses, he saved him using Pharaoh's daughter. You know, and, and he brought, her, brought him into the palace. And Pharaoh not only didn't get to kill him, he had to feed him and raise him, you know, clothe him. This was a guy that, you know, grew up in the palace under Pharaoh because that's where God had placed him. God had placed him for such a time 
as this, right? And he used him to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So here we see, you know, the slaughter of innocents, and yet God moved, saved Moses, brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Here we see again the slaughter of innocents. Herod had all these babies killed to, to com- keep his throne. And yet what did God do? God brought the Savior of the world into the world through Jesus. He brought him in so that we could all be redeemed. That plan of redemption was put into place. And Jesus was born and maneuvered around and God kept him safe and did all of those things that he could then die on the cross, pay that penalty, the redemption for our sins that only he could pay, only he could do it. And so that's what we see come out of that one. This brings me to what we see in our world today. And we see that massive slaughter of innocent babies through the government-sanctioned murder of the unborn, called abortion. The number of children being sacrificed on the altar of self-appeasement is unprecedented in all of history. There's so many so-called reasons people give, but it all comes down to self. Well, it's just not the right time for me to have a baby. Whatever excuse, God is brought to anger and proclaims that there will be judgment upon this sin. We read in Jeremiah where God is explaining to the people why they are about to be conquered and taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And this is one of the main reasons. Jeremiah 32, 35 says, And they built the high places of Baal, an altar to the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I did not command them. Nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. This was so horrific, what they were doing. They were sacrificing their own children to an idol, Molech, for whatever reasons they were doing it, whatever pagan beliefs they were doing. They were sacrificing their children, and God said this would be judged. So God in his perfect righteous judgment will bring wrath against a world that would commit what the Bible calls an abomination. And I believe that day is rapidly approaching. It seems to me by the pattern we see in God's word that this destruction of life was a kind of line in the sand for God. Whenever this would happen, God moved. I believe the next move of God is that Jesus is coming back to retrieve his bride, the church, and pour out his wrath upon an unbelieving and unrepentant world. But you know what is amazing about God? He's so merciful and he's always ready to forgive and restore when people come to him in repentance. And we get to see that in the very next verses in Jeremiah, the promised restoration of the people of Israel. God had just told them, you know, what they were doing was so wrong an abomination. And then in the next verses, he talks about their restoration. He says, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger. In my fury and in great wrath, I will bring them back to this place. And I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way. 
that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know, what, a, what an amazing thing. You know, Jeremiah is looking ahead to the millennial period where God will restore Israel to the land, the complete land, and they will have the place that they have always meant to have. You know, but we see here God's mercy and his grace. When people repent, they come to him in repentance and say, God, I want to change. I want to turn around. That's the very word repentance. It means to turn, to change your mind. And, and they, you know, God res- just will take that repentance and he is faithful and he's just and he will forgive you of your sins and he will restore you, right? And that is such an amazing thing. God gives us an example of his grace and forgiveness. And he tells us that if we repent, he will restore us. Now, many of you know here at Riverside Chapel, we are a house of refuge. Some of you might not know what that means, and I'll explain it. We began this ministry last Mother's Day, and we'll remain committed to it for as long as the need exists. We took this on as a, as, uh, as a church. We become a house of refuge. It's part of a group called Love Life out of the States. And we as a church will stand with women and girls that have unplanned pregnancies. And part of that is the house of refuge statement, what tells you the church's position on that. And I just want to read that. Riverside Calvary Chapel is a house of refuge. This applies to everyone in this church or people you know that need a place of refuge. Here's what we believe. If you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, please know that being pregnant is not a sin. And the child you carry is not a punishment. It's a blessing. God is knitting this child in your womb. You may have made a sinful decision that led to this pregnancy, or you may have even been sinned against. But we want you to know that you are loved. And we'll do whatever it takes to help you carry and care for this precious child before and after birth. We can never support or encourage a woman to have an abortion because this child you carry is made in the image of God and is intrinsically valuable and loved by God. And you need to know how we will respond. Here's what we won't do. This church family will not gossip about you, shame you, or abandon you. This is a house of refuge. And we will not allow for the family of God to harm one another with words or actions contrary to the love of God as revealed in his word. Here's what we will do. We'll do everything in our power to remove whatever obstacles may stand in the way of you having this child. There are people in this church ready to mentor you, throw you a baby shower, to connect you with resources both inside and outside of our church. Resources such as local pregnancy care centers and if required, abortion agent, uh, adoption agencies. We will also hold men accountable for living out their calling 
to provide and protect women and children. Finally, if you have ever had an abortion in your past, we want you to know that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes their sins finds both forgiveness and mercy. If you have never gone through a post-abortion Bible study, we will be happy to connect you to one so that you can walk in complete healing and freedom and find the restored life in Jesus Christ that is promised in his word. That's where we stand as a house of refuge here at Riverside. And we want everybody to know that. And we want people to be able to take part in that. There's a, there's a Love Life group on our website. If you want to be a part, join up there and we'll try to give you the information. There's some courses there that we take people through. We, we have mentors in this church and we want to mentor, we want to teach people to be able to talk to women that have had an abortion and, and bring them through, bring them back to that abundant life being restored in Jesus Christ. So church, as we wait for the return of Jesus, we're to occupy as the body of Christ and be light and salt in this world that we live in. One of the truly most important things you can do is pray. And don't only pray against the evil of abortion, but pray what God would have you to actively do in this battle. You know, worship team, you can come back up. My wife and I just recently came back. Last weekend we were in California, and we had the amazing opportunity of getting together with some of the Love Life people in California. And we spent Saturday on a prayer walk. And it was one of the most impactful things we've ever done. It was amazing. We gathered on a lawn outside of a church close to a pregnancy, uh, uh, Planned Parenthood. And we prayed and we worshiped God. And then we walked. And we pr- prayed quietly as we walked. And then we got to the Planned Parenthood. We actually were lined up on the, on the sidewalk outside that Planned Parenthood. And we were able to pray and pray specifically for what was going on inside. We prayed for the doctors. We prayed for the nurses. We prayed for the abortion workers that were there. And it was really neat because they asked Joan to pray specifically for the moms inside. And you know, The work that God does when people pray and are there and step up and stand up and do what God wants is amazing. That day, the the sidewalk ministry team that is in the parking lot, they said that there was eight cars that came in that day. Seven out of those eight cars took the literature they had to give them and wanted to look at the options. They said that was an amazing result that day, that they got that kind of percentage. And you know, Planned Parenthood itself has documented statistics that say when there's a praying group outside their places, their, their abortion rate, their attendance rate goes down by 70% on those days. Yeah, it's amazing. The power of prayer and what God can do is a wonderful thing. Lord, we thank you for what you've showed us here today out of your word. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. God, you are sovereign 
and you are in control of all things. Lord, we pray that as we look to your word about how you would like us to respond in our everyday life to what you have called us to do and where you have called us to do it, Lord, we just pray that we would be obedient to your word and move in the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.